0: Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by listening in, and we're grateful for you. Um, Before we begin, I just want to encourage you to not let this podcast replace the local church in your life. God has designed it so that we are to join a local church and serve that body of believers and be shepherded by the pastor of that church. And that's something no podcast can give you. And so if you're not involved in a local church, let me encourage you to find one as soon as possible. Enjoy our podcast. Open your Bibles to the book of Malachi. Malachi is the final book in the Old Testament. So just open your Bible to Matthew and just flip back a couple pages and you'll be at Malachi. It's a short book, Um, it's four chapters. He's one of the minor prophets um, probably the last of the prophets to prophesy in Israel. Um, and, and we're going we're gonna to focus in on chapter 1 today, but chapter, kind of all of Malachi is one big sermon. Um, and so chapter 1 is going to have implications for things in 2, 3, and 4. And so we're going to, in a way, work through the entire book of Malachi today, um, just mostly focusing in chapter 1. <clears throat> um if I, had, if I had a way to have you raise your hands, you know, here we're, we're still virtual, so I can't do that, but if I had a way to have you raise your hands, I would ask you, how many of you like to eat leftovers? Um, how, how many of you like to eat leftover food? Um, some food as leftovers it, are delicious. Um, when, when I worked at a pizza restaurant in high school, um, I loved the pizza when it was hot and, and, and warm. But um, I I loved it just as much right out of the refrigerator. I don't know how many of you will just eat cold pizza right out of the refrigerator. I love pizza like that. Um, And and the place that I worked in high school, I would actually occasionally, um, if I was getting off at like 10 o'clock, I would buy a, a whole pizza, take it home and put it in the fridge and get up the next day and eat it for lunch just straight out of the fridge. It was so good right out of the fridge. However, there are a lot of foods that are just not good as leftovers, right? There's a lot of food that, that like Pete, unlike pizza, is not just good right out of the fridge. And then there's a lot of food that if you microwave it, it's not good. Um, eggs are not that great reheated. They're, they're not good. Um, french fries are not good. You you know, if you, If you get a large fry at McDonald's and you don't eat it all, you put it in the fridge and... You know, you take it out the next day, whether you eat it cold or microwave it, they're just not the same. Um, Roasted vegetables, you know, if you take a pan and, you know, put green beans and potatoes in and and saute them up with spices, don't eat them all, put them in the fridge and take them back out, they're just not as good microwaved. Um, There's a lot of foods like that. They're just not good out of the refrigerator and in the microwave. They're not good reheated. Um, many of you probably don't like leftovers. You know, God hates leftovers. He hates leftovers. That's the situation that the, um, that, that's going on in Jerusalem that the book of Malachi is written for. Um, uh, understand what's happened. Remember, we just got done talking about the story of Elijah. Elijah's taken up in the chariot of fire. Elisha continues his ministry. Um, they're, they're in the place of Israel. And then there's all the other prophets as well, prophesying to the people saying you need to turn back to God. You've gotten off track and he's going to destroy you if you don't turn back. You've got people like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, um, so many others that are preaching to them. Turn back to God or we're going to get destroyed. Our nation is not going to last if you don't turn back to God. And the people don't listen. They do not listen to the prophets. And so eventually God turns them over to exile. He, he has another nation come in um, and wipe out the people of Israel and take them off into basically like slavery. Not the same thing as maybe what they were in in Egypt when Moses delivered them, but, um, but, but he takes the, he allows them to be taken into exile in Babylon. They were in captivity for 70 years. And then God released them. He allowed them to come back to the land of of Israel, to Jerusalem. He allows them to come back and rebuild the city, rebuild the temple, and start living life again there in Israel. And Malachi is prophesying about 100 years after that happens. So they've been in exile. They come out. They rebuild their city. They start living life again. And about 100 years later, Malachi prophesies. That's where we're at. Um, Malachi uh, is preaching at a time when the temple is completed they've built the temple Um, the city is finished they have finished building the city and now they have settled back in so, so understand they were in exile just like we've been the past three months they get to come back like we will get to do next week and a long time after they get to come back they um, Malachi's prophesying and um, they have settled in the people have settled into where they're at we have to be careful that doesn't happen to us when we come back to church that is we we come back and we start to get really comfortable we're, uh, we're, we're going to come back at first we're going to be on fire for God I think we're going to be really excited to be back we're going to be really um, zealous but very soon if we're not careful if we don't keep a watch on ourselves. we will get complacent and we will um, settle in we have to fight that so Israel has settled in there at home and as is always the case with the people of Israel and with us um, they have fallen into corruption they have started returning to their old habits old things that they did before they went into exile they didn't really learn their lesson in exile they continued what they did before These people came out of exile and and they were expecting great things to happen. They were expecting God to establish his kingdom when they came out of exile. And they just kind of returned to mediocre, normal lives. And they start asking questions like, why hasn't God done anything yet? Where is the triumph God promised us? Does God even love us anymore? And, and Malachi is going to speak to them in those circumstances. He, he's, going to, he's going to prophesy to them in those circumstances. And so we come to Malachi chapter one. I'm going to read, starting in verse six in, in verse six, and then I'm going to finish out the chapter. Malachi 1:6: "A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor?" I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, the food may be despised. Okay, so let me kind of tell you where I'm going this morning, um, because I can't read the entire book of Malachi here for time's sake. I invite you to go back and read it later after I've preached this if you haven't yet. Um, But I'm going to reference throughout the entire book where these certain things pop up, and I'm going to kind of outline it um, based on Malachi 1. Malachi 1 is about worship. Malachi 2, 3, and 4 is about how um, bad worship of God spills over into all the other aspects of your life. So pay attention to that. So... We are here Um, and and we come to this focal point and understand that God deserves honor and the priests aren't giving it to him. The priests of Israel are not honoring God as they should. And the worst part is the end of verse six, you notice, um, well, verse six, God tells them, hey, you need to be honoring me, priest. And the priests don't even recognize that they're not honoring God. That They ask, how have we despised your name? They don't even recognize their own sin, and they're the priest leading the people of God. What do you think the rest of the people in the nation are doing? Israel's worship is pathetic when you read this passage. It's something like, so, so imagine eight of us had a dinner. It's under 10 people, so I think we're good as far as social distancing goes. Imagine eight of us had a dinner party. And um, we were all supposed to bring part of that dinner. So one of you was going to bring the meat. One of you was going to bring the green beans. One would bring the potatoes. One would bring the corn. You gave me the dessert. You told me bring dessert. I said, okay, that sounds good. And of course, I chose strawberry shortcake. You know, you take pound cake, you put whipped cream on it, and then you put some strawberries on top of it. I love strawberry shortcake. um, And so that's what I chose. so I show up with strawberry shortcake. However, these strawberries are really old and mushy, <clears throat> excuse me, old and mushy. They've started to show some of those, you know, that, that, that fuzz that gets on strawberries when they get old. Started to have some of that. Um, the whipped cream smells terrible because I have had it in my fridge since 2015. And the, uh, the, the angel food cake, I'm sorry, I said pound cake, the angel food cake is burnt to a crisp. I left it in the oven about 20 minutes too long, right? You know, I told you, I get there and I tell you, you know, I had a lot of stuff in my house that I could have made, but I wanted strawberry shortcake, and I've had this stuff for a long time. I didn't feel like buying anything else, so I just brought this. This will do for dessert, Right? how would you look at me during that dinner? Uh, Imagine that I actually get all the stuff and it's time for dessert and I cut all the cake up and all of you have been kind of avoiding dessert, like, oh no, we can't eat that. But I get up and I'm really insistent. I'm like, I'm going to get your dessert. Let me go get it. So I cut up the cake and I put the, the smelly whipped cream on it and all the mushy, moldy strawberries on it and I bring it to you and I set it down in front of each of you and I sit down with mine and I start eating it. And you're like, what is wrong with this guy? And you're like, you know, kind of moving the food around, scooping it off for the dog to eat when I'm not looking. Because you don't want to eat this because you know it's, number one, gross. And number two, it's not going to be good for you. You're probably going to hurl after eating it, right? That's what's going on here. The Israelites are bringing sacrifices to the temple, but they're pretty much bringing, you know, oh... That sheep over there has got a broken leg. He's no good to us. Let's just sacrifice him in the temple. Oh, that dog there, he's, well, I don't think they sacrifice dogs. That that turtle dove, he's blind. He keeps flying into the walls. He's no good for us. Let's just go sacrifice him. They're bringing God the worst of their animals, the ones that they're just going to, you know, kick to the curb anyway. That's what's going on. In verse 8, God says, um, go ahead and present that to your governor and see what happens. Like, you're bringing that to sacrifice to me? Go give it to your governor and see if he approves of it. You know, go ahead and try to pay your taxes with the monopoly money. See if, see if your governor actually takes that and, and for your taxes. That's what's going on. In verses 9 and 10, God basically says, I wish you'd just close the temple. If you're gonna worship me like that, I wish you'd just shut the door and stop worshiping. I wish you would shut the doors and close the place down and sell the property to a, to a YMCA. Just, just stop, just stop worshiping me like that. You're being willing hypocrites. It's one thing to, you know, be hypocrites in the sense of, you know, we're never going to be perfect. We, you know, we screw up all the time, but we're seeking to be faithful to God. It's another thing to just say, oh, I don't really care. I'm just going to bring, you know, the, 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 the dead um, bear, the dead bull that I have in the backyard, and I'm going to sacrifice it. Or I'm going to, you know, bring, you know, the, those canned vegetables that I keep in the back of my pantry that have been there for eight years. The homeless people probably need that. So I'll just give that to them. I'm not using it, but obviously that's not your, you're not sacrificing anything by doing that, right? What kind of worship are they giving God? Is it just that they aren't singing loud enough in church? is it just that the preach the the priests don't preach well enough is it you know they don't lift their hands enough in in while they sing is is it that the music leader doesn't you know pick the songs that they want to sing the most like like what's going on here well understand it's not about the act of worship but the heart behind the worship you get that Like, what they're doing in church is a reflection of what they've been doing at home, what they are doing in their heart. Their heart is going to overflow into worship in church and outside of church. God always examines our heart. The state of your heart will determine the passion of your worship. God is concerned about your worship at church, but He's also concerned about the life of worship that fuels your worship at church. Understand, Romans 12.1 says um, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. That is your spiritual worship. Worship at church is so important. I never want to diminish that. Join this church. Become a part of this church. Attend every week. Come to Sunday school. Invest in those around you and serve. You need to do that. But the center of your worship of God is the kind of life you live both at church and throughout the week. If we're bringing leftovers to God in the temple, it's a reflection of how we're worshiping God in our lives. Uh, A Christian writer, A.W. Tozer, said, It is possible to worship God with our lips and not worship God with our lives. But I want to tell you, if, you wor- if your life doesn't worship God, your lips don't worship God either. Our worship in church will reflect, will reflect our lives. It's a good indication for how our lives are going based on how we worship in church. The way you worship God will affect every part of your life life. So get your pen, get your paper, take note of where I'm going to fly through here in Malachi because um, there are several ways throughout the book of Malachi that God shows them that their worship is affecting the rest of their life. And so I want to, I'm not going to read all of that. I want to point them out to you. Um, So this isn't just a thing at church. This is their entire life. So Malachi 2.10, look at that. Have we not all our one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? So first of all, the the way you worship God will affect the way you uh, live in your relationships with your friends and your family. Um, Bad worship of God will lead to broken relationships. These people have started dealing faithlessly with each other. They're dealing treacherously. They're betraying one another. You know, it's a good sign of bad worship of God when you stop loving other people. Do you get that? Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. Our love for others flows out of understanding how he loved us. And when you lose focus on how Christ has loved you, that is, you stop worshiping, it will affect how you love others. It will do that. How we love other people flows out of how we love God. So examine your heart. Do you love others? Do you put, your, do you put others' interest ahead of your own? Or are you constantly seeking to put yourself first? Because understand... Worshipping God to, worshiping God God not properly will lead to not loving others, and not loving others leads to a whole host of other sins. Anger, lust, envy, hatred. When we lay ourselves down, Jesus says we'll find our lives. So when we stop putting our interest in front of other people's interest, we will love them properly, and that will be an outflow out of how we love and worship God. So, broken relationships. You move on to verses 11 and 12. Again, I'm not gonna read all these. Take note of these and read them later. Um, Verses 11 and 12 says that they have been worshiping idols. They've been faithless to God. Not just faithless to each other, but also faithless to God and worshiping idols, which if you know the story of the Old Testament is the whole reason they ended up in exile in the first place. They were worshiping false gods. Israel has begun to neglect the true God and get drawn away by other things. Their prayer life was little to nothing. If they were reading their Bible, it was just to check a to do list, to to get it done for the day. They were speaking with profanity and it didn't even bother them. They had no problem with the sin in their lives. They, you know, they, they would post a Christian post on Facebook one minute and the next post they share 10 minutes later was an insult to somebody. Like it didn't even connect and it didn't bother them. Uh, and, and God compares, uh, kind of chapter two is all flowing together. God compares this to divorce. That's a sharp word. He says, he, he, he compares it to divorce. Their abandonment of him is like divorce. Look it back at chapter, or verse five and six of chapter two. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity." That's the life that we're supposed to live. That's the life Israel is supposed to be living. They've abandoned it, and they're being faithless, and God basically in the rest of the passage says they have divorced him. They have issued a divorce decree. Look at verse five. He feared me, he stood in awe of my name. Does that sound like your life? Because that's what true worship is. He feared me and he stood in awe of my name. I want that to be my life. Is that your life? Do you want that for your life? I want to stand in awe of God's name. I want to fear him. However, I'm so often pulled away by other things. I so often stand in awe of much lesser things. Do you? It's like standing in awe of lesser things than God is kind of like staring at a puddle in your driveway when you could be looking out over the ocean. Do you get that? Like a puddle in your driveway is is not that incredible, especially when you can look out and see the ocean. Stand on the beach and see the waves coming in, hear the roar of the ocean, see miles and miles of nothing but water. God is the ocean The puddle in our driveway is other things, and we're so often drawn to those other things. To to worship God rightly, we keep our eyes on the ocean, and we stop worrying about the puddle. Chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, bad worship of God leads to broken marriages. That's what's going on in Israel, broken marriages, um, so the Israelites came back to Jerusalem after the exile. They um, rebuilt the city. They settled in. And later, Ezra and Nehemiah come in, and they check out the place. And um, the Israelites have begun to intermarry with, with pagans around. And, they, and every time Israel intermarries with pagans, they always adopt the pagan culture. But it's even worse than that. Ezra and Nehemiah come in, and they see people are literally divorcing their wives to marry pagan women. That, that's what's happening there. It's disgusting. The, the, they are, they're married to faithful Israelite women, and they divorce her because they saw a pretty pagan woman over by the wall, and they're going to go marry her. That, that, that's what they're doing. And God rebukes them. Verse 14 and 15 of chapter two, but you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and your wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wives of your youth. They are divorcing their wife to marry a pagan woman that they think is a little more attractive. And that all flows out of wrong worship of God, bringing leftovers to God, not caring about their worship of God. That's what's going on. How, understand how you worship God will affect your marriage. Is your honest goal of your marriage the spiritual growth of your spouse? Is that what you want most for your marriage? Understand, husbands, Ephesians 5 says you're supposed to wash your wife with the cleansing water of the Word of God. You're supposed to cleanse her with the Scriptures. Understand, wives, 1 Peter 3 says that you're supposed to model the love of Christ to your husband in such a way that even in hard times you might win him over through your love. Do you get that? That's the point of marriage. We're we're to be loving one another as Christ loved us, to build one another up spiritually. That's the goal. We, We so often center our marriage on so many other things. You know, we need companionship. We need happiness. You know, we get married so we can have sex. You know, we, we get married so we'll have tax benefits, um, so that we can have someone to go on vacation together and don't have to vacation alone. Like, these things are all great benefits of marriage, but they're not the point. They're not the point. The the goal of your marriage is not your happiness. The goal of your marriage is your holiness. That's the point, that you would become more like Jesus through loving your spouse even when it's hard. That's the point of marriage. My mentor in the ministry, Tim Harris, um, he he says, he said this before, I've I've heard him say it. He, He said once in a sermon, I've been a pastor 20 years. I've performed a lot of weddings. I've also presided over a lot of divorces, you know, I've never seen two couples get divorced who were seeking to make Christ the very center of their marriage. Understand the level to which you love God and make Christ your highest priority will make or break your marriage. It will. If you bring leftovers to God, it will cause you to have a broken marriage. You come to 2.17. Something else that comes about from bad worship is questioning God's justice. Let's just read verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied you? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the justice of God? Where is the God of justice? Israel has gotten so stale in their affection for God, they have forgotten who he is. They, they are looking at the world around them and they're questioning God's justice. Look at all this chaos. God must delight in evil. Why isn't he doing something? Or better yet, maybe he's not really that sovereign of a God. Maybe he just kind of took a step back when he created and he's just letting the world spin out of chaos. And neither one of those are true. And maybe you've been tempted to think one or two of those in the midst of what's going on in the United States right now with literally giant riots in most of the major cities of the country. Understand, if you, if you believe in a God who um, all he does is bring blessing and peace, you, you'll be really confused by what's going on in the country right now. Or, or you will diminish your own view of God and think he must not actually be that much in control. But if you understand that God also sometimes allows calamity and destruction for a good plan that he has, then these riots won't seem so out of control. Understand God is fully in control of these riots no matter how much chaos they seem like. He's not running around in heaven like, okay, Jesus, Holy Spirit, we got to figure out what to do because those people are mad. They're out of control. I don't know what to do. We got to figure it out. No, he is on his throne still in control and nothing is going to stop him. Do you get that? He, He knows how to control these riots and for right now, he's allowing them to persist. They ask where is the justice of god and he answers in chapter 3 verses 1 through 6 again i'm not going to read all these take notes of this Um, but verse 1 he says i will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messengers of the covenant in whom you delight behold he is coming says the lord of hosts where's the justice of god they're asking oh I'll tell you where he is. Just wait till my messenger shows up on the scene. My messenger is going to come. That's what he says. Who is that messenger? Well, if you read the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, um, it equates this verse with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is this messenger. He's going to come, he's going to prepare the way for the Lord, and then that Lord who, whom they seek will suddenly come to his temple. That's Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Do you ever wonder where the justice of God is? Look at Jesus. He's the answer. He's the pure justice of God in every situation. His death on the cross, His resurrection from the dead is the answer to every question you can have of God. Somehow that is the answer. The cross and the resurrection, the gospel message. It's the answer to all of our questions about God in some way or another. But this... This, this Lord is going to come and he's going to do two things. Verses 2 through 4, he's going to refine God's people. That is, we are sinners. When we receive Christ, we're forgiven of our sins. And God begins to do a cleansing work in our lives. Um, if you read that passage, he says, that he compares it to, um, to, to a refiner's fire or to Soap. That is, that through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are purified like a refiner's fire, or it's like soap. We are scrubbed clean of, of filth. But then secondly, five, verse 5, I said 5 and 6, actually just 5, God's going to judge those who do not fear Him. God's going to judge those who do not fear Him. You read that verse, and there's all these different sinners named. You know, there's adulterers and sorcerers and liars and um, the, the ones who oppress widows and orphans and, and all kinds of things like that. But when, when you read the verse, you see that the point of it is they all don't fear him. When you, when you worship God wrongly, you will question his inju- you will question his justice. And if you don't worship God, you will treat other people wrongly as verse 5 says. One more. I think there's one more, if I'm correct. Yes, there's one more. The hard one. Money. Money, verses 6 through 12. You know something's messed up with Israel in regards to their money by the way God opens this passage in verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. I do not change, so you're not consumed. But you should be consumed. You should be. Look at how you're spending your money. He says in verses 8 through 10, you are robbing God. You're mugging God. That's what happens here. When you worship God wrongly, it will affect the way you spend your money. Understand that. What does the law require Israel to give? Well, 10%. We know that. That's what a tithe is. It's 10%. They aren't giving that. We have a little bit different system now that we're in the New Covenant, the New Testament age. Um, We don't give tithes to the temple. We give financially to help and support the local church and the ministries of the church. Some would actually argue that tithing is not a thing in the New Testament. Um, And technically speaking, it's not. Um, The the New Testament never commands you to give 10%. um, But understand what it does command you. It commands you to give everything you've got. It commands you to completely give your life to Jesus and everything you own and all your relationships and and everything else. There's actually a story in the New Testament where um, the priests are walking in and they're throwing a couple coins in the temple treasury and they think they're awesome. And then a widow comes in and all she's got is two pennies to live on and she gives both of those. And Jesus says, that widow is is faithful. Those priests are pathetic. The New Testament calls us to be generous givers, and how we worship God will will determine how we do that. Why do we give? Well, it's not because God needs our money. It's it's not because of that. He, He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the universe. He doesn't need your money. It's a matter of trust when we give of our income, when we give of what we have, we're saying, God, I am willing to put my well-being on the line for you. I I give this to you. I I am willing to live on less of my income for the sake of um, your church being able to do work. I, I trust you. So after all this, Malachi has said that um, you, the, if you worship God wrongly, it will, it will be apparent in so many areas of your life, your friendships, your, um, the, the way you're so easily drawn away to other things, your marriage, your money, your questioning of God, um, so, so many things. After he says all this, how does Israel respond? We'll look at Malachi 3, 16-18. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, After all this is over, the people respond, and they actually listen to Malachi. If you know, Israel doesn't have a big track record for listening to the prophets. They listen to him, and they choose to worship God rightly. And God says that, I, that he pays attention to them, he remembers them, he calls them, mine, and they will be spared from judgment, and they will shine as the righteous ones in the world. So how will you respond today? Will you hear what God says through Malachi and devote yourself to the Lord? Or will you continue going on thinking everything's okay with you? I preached a sermon a few weeks ago on, on the book of Hosea, and it like blew up. Like, uh, I didn't think it was that great of a sermon when I wrote it, but, but you all really responded to it. Um, one, one of you, well, one of you put on your Facebook, our pastor sure shelled the corn this morning. <laughs> I honestly don't 100% know what that means, but that's like the coolest compliment I've ever gotten. So, um, but understand, I, I preached that sermon. I, I didn't think it was that great. The Holy Spirit took it and made it great. He, he took it and used it in your hearts. Uh, I, I Uh, One of my seminary professors said, you need to write good sermons and let the Holy Spirit make them great sermons. And and that's what the Holy Spirit did with with that one. Um, Glory to God for that. Um, Understand, the point of my sermon was simply this. Um, God is using this pandemic to heal us, this quarantine to heal us. And understand, when I said that, I didn't necessarily mean America. You might have taken it that way that God's going to heal America and we're going to return to the Christian nation we once was, but that's not what I meant. America is a sinful nation and and it will be until Jesus returns or until America comes to an end the way the Roman Empire did and the way so many other nations have in the past. Um, We have a great nation, but just understand that it's not perfect. It's sinful, just like the rest of the earth. My prayer has been in this pandemic, this entire quarantine, that God would use this to heal the church, that we would begin to value the things that are most important, that we would stop putting our hope in things that don't matter and turn our hearts completely to Jesus. when, When I say church, I don't mean Mount Zion. I mean the church overall, every church in the world, Mount Zion being one of those. Let's Fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's value the things that he finds truly important in church. Let's forget about all the other stuff that we think are so important that really aren't. That that just really aren't. Has that happened to you? As we return to church next week, will will you allow the Lord to heal and renew you? That you might have fervency and, and zealousness when you come back. And imagine what the Lord could do if all of us did that. The righteous and the wicked are contrasted at the end here, and that's all, what all of chapter 4 is about, that um, the days are coming when the righteous and the wicked are going um, to be. The, the day of the Lord is coming. Let me just read the passage instead of get confused over it. For behold, the day, this is chapter 4, six verses. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble, the day that is coming shall, be set a, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts." Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of destruction, utter destruction. And that's how the Old Testament ends. 400 years of silence after that where God doesn't speak until Elijah comes on the scene. It's not the Elijah we just studied about. It's a man named John the Baptist who preaches in the same ministry as Elijah. Jesus calls John the Baptist Elijah several times. And John's going to prepare the way for the son of righteousness, as this passage says. He's going to prepare the way for the son of righteousness to come and live and die and rise again and thus provide healing for the righteous and destruction for the wicked. Which one are you? Uh, Understand the righteous are not the good people and the wicked the bad people. The righteous are the people hanging out in their house and and the wicked are the ones out rioting. That's not how it is. The, The righteous are those who have faith in Jesus, who have placed their lives under him. The wicked are those who have not. The righteous are the ones who have been made righteous by faith in Christ the wicked are those who have not. Which one are you? Just remember today that, when, that, that how you worship in church is a, a picture of how you worship in your life. How you worship in your marriage, how you worship with your money, how you worship um, in your relationships, how you worship in your life. The two will never be different than each other that they will never be different.